But you know how much time people spend thinking, what do they think about me? What are, what are they saying about me behind my back? Like, how on earth are you going to know? Like, you're going to figure that out? Because if you can overcome this, you'll be a far, far greater person. And it must be that the whole reason that this happened to you is so that you could become a greater person. Welcome to From the Inside Out. I'm Rifka. And I'm Ida. We're mums, wives, entrepreneurs, and friends on a mission to change the world for the better, one conversation at a time. Through interviews with world-renowned thinkers, leaders, and our everyday heroes, we bring you wisdom, insight, and practical tools that can change your life for the better. We believe that every experience provides us with an opportunity for learning. Our job is to be patient with the process of growth and trust that our journey will lead us to where we're meant to be. Words can inspire us, but it's only once we channel that inspiration into action that we begin to experience the positive change we want to see in the world. We hope this platform will inspire you to create positive change in mind, body, and soul from the inside out. Thank you for being here and let the conversation begin. Today's episode is sponsored by Jupe NYC. Jupe is modest fast fashion and they have some amazing shops around the USA. It's modest fashion that's catered to all types of women on their own modest journey. And I happen to love Jupe. I know Ida, you love Jupe as well. Uh, for example, I'm going on a trip today. It's it, They're on my block. The shop is on my block. I'll run in there. I'll always find something fashionable, unique that you would find in a boutique in Europe, but also really affordable. I'm always so pleasantly surprised at the price when I am paying at the counter and I'm always so happy with my purchases. I think Jupe NYC manages to make modest fashion trendy. I love their stuff and I would say the proof is in the pudding. You know, if you go on their website, you'll see what I mean. We're not compromising on trends, on fashion. Um, by being modest. I think Jeep NYC kind of proves this, that you don't have to compromise. So yeah, I love it. I'm actually looking at it right now and I'm seeing some really cute, liking the Madeline sweater, like a baby blue sweater. And there's this uh, sweater dress that's really pretty. I'm actually wearing their dress in our podcast um, cover picture. It's like a taupe dress and it just happens to be a Jeep NYC dress. I'm just realizing this now. Oh my gosh, so, yes. I don't. I think it, it, I got it a while ago, so I don't know that they still have it on the site, but... And it's really pretty. But I love it. I still wear it. It's a great yeah, dress. Yeah, really pretty. So go to www.jupenyc.com, J-U-P-E-N-Y-C.com, and the link will also be in our podcast notes. Thank you, Jupe. Thank you. I'm really excited to be able to share the sponsorship today. If you're looking to sponsor an episode or do something meaningful, for a relative or friend's birthday or in memory of, of somebody special or to promote your organization or business, reach out to Rivka and Ida, R-I-V-K-A-H and Ida, E-D-A at gmail.com. We would love to be a partner with you in our upcoming episodes. You know how sometimes you just want to be able to get a shortcut or just give me the main points. Give me the, like the meat and potatoes, the most important things that I need to know that will help me, whether it's directions like, Hey, tell me the best way to get to this place from point A to point B, or tell me the best way to make chocolate chip cookies without having to go through a million steps. It's funny. There's this recipe book where I love matbucha. You know, that dip, that, um, red pepper dip. I saw this recipe that was highly rated. 
but it was like 20 different steps. I'm like, come on. I don't have no, time for 20 steps. We don't steps. have time for 20 steps. Yeah. I, Matbucha I've been getting into more because my son-in-law is Sephardi and he loves Matbucha. But, so yeah. the question is, do you need to go through 50 different steps to make something good? Or is there a great way, like a shortcut, to get it done in less time and you're not compromising on the taste? And I have found, I feel like one of my side hustles is finding shortcuts within cooking. Because I don't like spending time in the kitchen, but I do like good food. And so does my family. Either you and I, that's something that we love is shortcuts. Right. I feel like you make shortcuts for health. Your food is so good and you don't want to compromise on the flavor and the taste just because you want to eat healthy. So you find healthy adaptations for existing recipes that are as delicious. So I want shortcut. I want less time, same flavor. And a unique twist. Yes. And that's what you're going to get here today is a daily dose of a lot of the questions that we have in life with a unique twist and a lot of flavor. From the very person who's best known for taking a wealth of information and handing it over in bite-sized pieces in shortcuts where like one small paragraph can give you so much. And I love that. I feel like I'm all about that. Like less is more sometimes. Like too much information and you lost me. I just can't absorb it. So I need the short ones. That's why I love quotes. That's why we love quotes. It may look to you like it's a long episode, but you're going to get a lot of little shortcuts within this episode recommend maybe having a piece uh, a pen and paper yeah or just keeping your notes open if you're not driving uh, if you're not jogging um, or just have in mind these little bits of wisdom that you want to remember bring home so without further ado we will share with you a little bit about our guest today and Ida make sure maybe you can share that Macbucha recipe in the podcast notes okay fine yeah I'll do it Okay. <laughs> now, now, don't don't judge me because it does involve not fresh tomatoes, which that original recipe did have. But I would say try it, taste it, and email me. <laughs> With shortcuts, though, sometimes we got to go through a long journey to actually get to the shortcut. But I feel like our whole podcast is about that: sharing life experiences and then condensing them in a little daily dose of how you can improve your life. Right, like here's what you need to know. Uh, let me save you the aggravation. Cause... Yeah, we may have been the guinea pigs, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> but it was worth it. Yeah, it always <laughs> is because you end up learning so much about yourself and life and growing. But I think there's that's... such a balance because I feel like you have to go through challenges and mistakes. You have to go through those things in order to grow, but you also want to not always have to go through those things. Yeah, exactly. So this is for those times where it's like, thank you for this tip so that I don't have to go through that. Right. You're, you're not the oldest in the family, but I feel like the oldest in the family, I've had certain discussions I've had with some some of my siblings, they're like, you know, thanks for that shortcut. Like I watched you and now I know what to do and what not to do. What's the best shortcut you ever received or one of the best that you think? Oh, wow. That's a good question. I think... I feel, I feel like I got a message from somebody that I look up to that has given me a shortcut, but I still had to go through a journey to get to, to actually ask the question. Um, so the message that I got was I felt responsible for somebody else. And um, the person said to me, work on yourself. And in that way, you're helping the person. Like you shouldn't feel burdened and responsible for somebody else. Work on yourself and then you're helping others 
But if you want to change someone else, just change yourself. It's a lot easier. Yeah. Shorter. I, I think that's a profound message. So it's kind of like, I guess the shortcut is good advice. Because you can't change other people. And sometimes it takes you years to discover that. So save yourself the time. And when I say change yourself, I, I don't mean become a different person. I just mean develop an awareness of what exactly you have the capacity to change and what do you not have the capacity to change. And I think many of us are stuck right there in that space. Things we think that we can change, but we can't. And things that we think we can't change, but we can actually change. Yeah. So for you me, know? that that was a, a shortcut in that saves a lot of time and energy knowing that it's myself that I have to work on. Yeah. What about you? I think with reading, because there's so much I want to read and there's so much information that I want. There's so much knowledge I still feel I want to, to gain, you know, that there's all these different resources like books and websites and like I feel and I get overwhelmed just thinking about how much I want to read but I don't I just don't have the time so I love podcasts actually podcasts are shortcuts for me because yeah. as certain ones that like like Lewis Hose but he's well known he's a former athlete but he brings on guests who are many of whom I never heard of but then once I hear the interview I'm like how did I not know this person I actually would recommend it if anyone's listening if anyone's looking out for you know, other podcasts to listen to, but that's a good one. Get access to amazing information that you can listen to on the go when you don't have to be tied down. Like I love whenever I'm driving or walking or it's just a great, it's a short, I think that's a shortcut. I would, yeah. I would consider that a shortcut. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So without further ado, enjoy a whole lot of shortcuts within this podcast. Yeah. Meet Rabbi Tzvi Freeman, Senior Editor at Chabad.org one of the first Jewish internet sites and the first and largest virtual congregation. Svi is one of the foremost teachers of inner wisdom. His daily dose of wisdom from Chabad.org has one of the largest subscriptions on the Jewish net. The weekly Freeman Files answering real people on real issues fans out to countless cyber fans and his Heaven Exposed series gets across the stickiest issues of Kabbalah and spicy science fiction dramas. Svi Freeman has built a reputation for delivering the authentic inner wisdom of Judaism in highly original bite-sized packages. Svi Freeman was born in Vancouver, Canada, where he became involved at an early age in yoga, Tao, and radical politics. In 1970, he was a founding member of Total Education and Alternative High School. In 1975, he left a career as a classical guitarist and composer to study Talmud and Jewish mysticism for nine years. Received rabbinical ordination at the Lubavitch Central Yeshiva in New York and completed postgraduate studies at the Rabbinical College of Canada. Svi Freeman currently lives in Atlanta, Georgia, where he continues his work delivering daily doses of insight right to our inbox. So they enjoy the episode. It's, it's kind of split in two. There's Svi Freeman's journey that you're going to hear about in the beginning, and then we get straight to the daily doses. Enjoy. Enjoy. I'll tell you one of the epiphanies of my life. I was. I guess, 17 years old. Um, and I had been traveling around uh, because I, when I was 15, I already graduated. I got my high school diploma. And then I just was hanging out with what my father called the fringe members of society. And so my uncles put some money together and sent me off to Israel. 
And I hitchhiked around Israel. At that time, the Sinai Peninsula belonged to Israel. I spent a lot of time there with the Bedouins and so on. And then I decided I wanted to go to Europe. And I went to Amsterdam, France, uh, all around England and Scotland, on a bicycle or hitchhiking. And just kept on moving from one place to another, got odd jobs here and there in kitchens or hotels, whatever, just to keep on moving, keep on moving. And then at, at one point, I realized I'm just running from myself. Like I'm saying at one point in my life later, after all this, I'm going to, to decide what I want to do. I'm going to find myself. I'm going to grow up. And why don't I just do that right now? <laughs> And shortly after that, I came back home. Yeah, so so travel. That's, that's a very young age to realize that, to make that realization. That's young. Well, I, I was all like I said, I was already I'd already gone through a lot of things by then. But but it was in traveling, you see a lot of things, but as you see more and more things, you get to see the you that these things are seeing. You know, this person. The more you discover other people, the more you have an idea of who I am. That's how we develop a sense of self. Who I am is from knowing who other people are. You know, like Adam, Adam Rishon. When Adam had didn't know who he was, so God told him to name all the animals, and he named all the animals, and he still didn't know who he was. And then God brought him an, a, a, a woman, and he says, "Oh." This is Isha, Lazos, Yukari Isha, Kimi Ish, Luka Chazos. She's an Isha because she comes from an Ish, and that's the first time we see Adam saying who he is. He's an Ish. He's a person. He's an individual. But he only discovers that after he discovers everyone else. Then he can know who he is. So, so traveling helps you know who you are in that sense to some degree, unless you just keep escaping yourself and running and running from yourself. Wow. That's, that's so interesting. We are all the same in, obviously, we're all connected. We're all one soul. So I guess we learn from each other in the sameness of each other. And then we also learn from each other in how we're all unique. And then that uniqueness kind of makes yeah. us realize who we are. I remember uh, I was standing there, it was a yeshiva bocher, and the rebel was talking to the Atzibus Hashem rally, I think it was. It was for the kids. And uh, uh, the Rebbe started talking to them about Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach, how the Jews are to, meant to teach non-Jews also how to live. And there was one line the Rebbe said that, I, I don't have it exactly, but it was along the lines of that the thing we have, you, you see somebody who's different from you, the thing you have and we have, or human beings have the most in common, are our differences. So you embrace that. It's part of, it's part of uh, union with other people, not just to find the sameness of all of you, but the uniqueness of each person. How this person is valuable for this, this person valuable for that. Oh, so I also must have my own unique value, and you try to find where's my niche, where's my niche. You know, when you bring up multiple kids. <laughs> You've done that multiple kids, right? You see, each one, each one is looking at what's the other one getting scolded at, right? My what's my older sibling getting scolded for? Oh, so if I don't do that, I'll be the favorite. 
<laughs> I'm going to find my niche. Each one's looking for, for my niche. Okay. The first one's messy. So the next one's really neat and tidy. <laughs> but that one, that one maybe doesn't do so good in school. So the next one does really good in school. Each one tries to find to compete. That's a good thing, though, because you get uh, you get a good team. You got a great baseball team there. Each one knows what their role is and what they do best. That's such a great perspective. Instead of comparing ourselves to someone else and making ourselves feel worse in some way, we're really looking at the other person to find our own uniqueness and appreciate the other person's uniqueness. Yeah, yeah. And what you're, I think also what you're saying is that our best bet at finding real connection is in our otherness. I feel like so many of us, especially kids are trying to be like everyone else. It's interesting because we're trying to be like everyone else, but we also want to stand out, but not too much out of our comfort zone. And we're always balancing, you know, wanting to fit in and wanting to stand out and it could be confusing. But what you're saying is that getting to know who we really are as different from the other person is what helps us connect, which is in a way counterintuitive. It it's it is, but um, really that's the way we work when human beings work in a team, when we work as a society. That really is what makes the human species so successful, is that we're not, we don't act as a herd or as a flock. We each, we can put a group of people together and say, well, you do this and you do that and I do that and I do this and and we create those teams. So that really is the advantage of being a human being, is looking for your uniqueness, your niche. I mean, that's what money does. When we work with currencies, with money, economics, what are we doing? The, The money is only there to tell you, if you do this, you'll have an advantage because nobody else is doing that. Oh, this is a place where you can create value. So economy, our economy, our world economy is all about everybody finding something unique. If everybody would do the same thing, there wouldn't be any economy. Uh, That's the difference. Yeah, well, we we want to discuss your uniqueness (laughs) right now. (laughs) Um, We discovered through our research that you were once a yoga enthusiast and guitarist. And we also heard a little rumor that you might have been a hippie too. A unique hippie, a unique hippie. A unique hippie, okay. <laughs> and can you tell us, and then can you tell us what inspired you to become a chassid? You can yeah. grab a copy of Bringing Heaven Down to Earth, which yeah, was the I have first. It right here. Well, yeah, okay, you have it, right. And, yeah. and there's an introduction there where I, I poured out my soul into writing and it described my journey and where I'm coming from, where I'm going. Let me start with the last thing you said, and maybe work backwards. What what inspired me to be a chassid? So the first... Uh, sorry, just to pause and give everybody a little bit of background. We understand that you weren't religious, and then you became religious. No, that's not true. I was oh. born as soon as I came out from my mother's womb, and even before I was a religious Jew. I just didn't know it, and nobody told right. me what I was supposed to do. <laughs> oh, that is so good. Oh, I love Isn't it. Me? Okay. <laughs> a duck is born a duck. There may be no water around. Maybe the duck's born in the middle of the Sahara Desert. It's still a duck. So it's just, it's got to find water. And then it's got to find that the water is not something dangerous. And it's actually a nice place to be. And oh, this is where I belong. But it's a duck. So the same thing I was saying about being a, a chassid. So the first person I met that I reckon, oh, this is a Hasidic Jew, was Professor Eliyahu Cohen from Montreal, right? So you know him. And he was in Vancouver, in a ma- for a mathematicians conference in the summer of 
1975. It was a groundbreaking mathematicians conference. Uh, he was a professor at a college in, in Montreal, and he was there. Professor Rosenblum was also there. But I was I was on campus, even though it was summer, I was doing some summer stuff. And I came across him, and he's wearing a long black coat, a capota, and he's got this scrag scraggly beard. And I look at him, and he, I think, Elie Wiesel, soul's on fire. This is it. This is the real thing. So I go over to him, and I said, are you a member of the Hasidic sect? Something like along those lines. And he didn't hear me at first. I said, like, are you a, 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 a Hasidim, like one of those people? And he, he backs off a little bit and he says, he, then he smiles and then he says, well, we try to be Hasidim. And, and from that point on, it was always in, engraved in my mind that you just try to be, you can, I want to be Hasid. You don't really become it. It's just something you're always wanting to be and trying to be. So I don't like the labels. Because the labels put us each in little compartments. You enter into this door, sit down, we shut the door, you're with all these people now. And, and there are walls between you and the others. Whereas when we're all trying to be something, then we're all on a spectrum somewhere, and it's very fluid, and we're more, much more connected with everybody else that way. So, so maybe all Jews are want to be Hasidim, and want to be something moving towards one goal. There's a connection there. So this it's a long story, but I came from the, that background in Vancouver, um, growing up or One second, attempting to grow up. You said it's a long up. story. You know how to make things, condense things. Oh, <laughs> everything except for my own life. Uh, it's too much. It's too much. But to say it was a wild place to be, to be a teenager in Vancouver in the 60s and 70s, uh, when all these American draft dodgers were coming up there and and corrupting our youth, and I was one of the youth. <laughs> so oh, it was a very wild me. place okay, to it. be. And and besides that, all these uh, these uh, gurus and psychoanalysts and and encounter groups and all these things were happening there in the Georgia Strait and Vancouver Island and in Vancouver. Um, and to top it off, my mother grew up in India. She's a good Iraqi family who ran from Baghdad to Bangalore and then to Vancouver. And so she had many friends who, who were Brahmin Indian. And so we had a lot of connection with, with what was this, this, this imported spirituality from India, all sorts of things, all sorts of very fascinating people and influences, and, and a lot of turmoil in life, because you didn't know what was good and what was wrong. 
and who are you supposed to be and what is a human being i don't know that it's it was any more confusing than today for today is a very confusing time for a young person but there was a lot of the earth was shaking under your feet and so you so you were searching and at 14 years old i was already practicing yoga and all sorts of things of reading all sorts of works and trying to find i felt it couldn't be judaism because all i saw of judaism was old men mumbling yiskadavi yiskadash what's that got to do with spirituality but on the other hand i remember this feeling after i came back from listening to one of these gurus from india and i at this voice in my head said to me god must have a lot more to do with the real world than these gurus are letting on because i i felt i was involved in radical politics and and at the same time with the free university and anarchist groups and all the politics that was happening radical politics was happening at the same time and at the same time i was involved in this yoga and tai chi and all these th- those things as well i thought there must be a connection between the two but they bifurcated they ripped the two apart they have nothing to do with each other no there must be a connection and and it was only after i was i exposed to chabad that i saw yes there is a connection the two have a lot to do with each other a lot to do with each other um you you if you're spiritual you're a political activist if you're a political activist you must be spiritual the two must go together there's a blend so i'm not telling a story over there that's not a narrative that doesn't really give you an inkling of it because it it's just i'm going to get stuck in all the mire of everything that i went through for that but i i i think it was a my own unique journey where i hitchhiked around and traveled around a lot and eventually ended up as a music student um uh, writing string quartets and things like that a classical guitarist and then after um i think i had a good academic background i ended up in yeshiva I- i'll tell you how i ended up in yeshiva yeah that would be interesting to hear going from being a guitarist and traveling yeah. the world <laughs> and, and i was a good guitarist too um because rabbi so, rabbi levi gorelick i was talking to him upstate and he said yeah. that in yeshiva there was a band of you and this is named biton yeah yitzhak biton moshe morgenstern and menachem schmidt and he said you guys just played beautiful you, play, you played so beautifully so i know yeah. from somebody that you play beautifully we we were the first hasidic <laughs> rock band so uh, in uh, when was that we started that band i think in 77 so um and it was hard rock so 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 this is the this is how I, i the the click i guess there were a lot of things behind it first of all my sister my older sister had got somebody told her she wanted to break off a bad relationship which was not a good relationship she was in so a friend of the family told her go to minnesota and she went up to machan khana which had just started then in minnesota and she was writing letters to me and i thought oh no my my sister's become a religious fanatic 
I was always very skeptical of, of falling into any particular clique or anything. I want to be eclectic. She's become a religious fanatic, you know. And then she came back and she insisted that that I had to go and stay with a, a family for for Shabbos, and I was going to meet these young rabbis and the whole bit. And uh, and you know what can I do? I'm a Jewish boy. My life is molded by my grandmother, my mother, and my older sister, and then my wife, and then my daughters. You know that's how Jewish men operate. So my older sister says, "You're staying by this family for Shabbos." And what am I going to do? Okay, so I do that. And it was a it was actually a a Persian family, Iranian, Banayan. Um, it was a beautiful Shabbos there. It was the first time in my life I saw a family sitting together at a meal and no Third World War erupted. <laughs> they actually sat together and then they got up after the meal. I said, where are you going? As we're going for a walk. Where are you walking to? And they looked at me, oh, we're just going for a walk. And the family got up. Teenage boys going with their parents for a walk. Nowhere. <laughs> wow. I never imagined such a thing. And I, our family, if I sat, if me, my sister would sit down, my mother and father at a meal. Wow. Explosive. <laughs> but this, they're going for a walk together. They like each other. Okay. So the next day, I, I wasn't really interested in coming for services, anything like that. It was very dull. So, but in the afternoon, they talk, uh, this is what my sister really wanted me to come for. This rabbi is talking, a young rabbi, he's going to be talking. And he comes, he sit, and he walks in. And it's guys, I saw there were four of them. And they were wearing fedoras. Now, the only place I'd seen fedoras before, they're certainly not in like movies or that's not what they wore in the Hasidic books, you know. And the, it, the fedoras you saw in uh, in mafia movies, like gangster movies, you know. So and they had these like pinstripe suits and the whole bit. That, but they had beards, so like mafioso with beards. I, 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 what is this? It looked totally bizarre to me. And spiritual gangsters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, the men in black. So and. Yeah. and the, and 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 so he sits down like this is a talk that he's giving, and and you have all, uh, the yeshiva students are visiting home for the summer, and uh, what 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 he's going to say, and he sits there, and he starts speaking, and I, what language is he? What is he talking about? What on earth is going on over here? And all I got is like there's something about light coming in through the windows. And then something about the vessel shattering. I thought, like, well, I better go to the kitchen and see what happened. Something shattered. And, and, and but I don't. This kind of like, I don't know what on earth he's talking about. But it's something very fascinating. And then afterwards, he opens for questions, and and they're asking questions that must have been totally off the wall for him. Really flustered him. Like, are you trying to prove that God exists or something? Like, I don't know. Uh, I grabbed him afterwards. I said, okay, explain to me, what is this about? What are you talking about? It's funny. So you remember, I'm coming from a background where I've read um, read existentialist philosophers, and I've read the uh, read uh, about Buddhism and Bhagavad Gita and and Taoism and all these things. And, and I'm coming, I'm trying to understand what Rosicrucians, the whole bit. I'd, I'd gone, read, picked up all this stuff. Um, 
and I'm drilling him for what has he got to deliver over here? And finally, I said to him, okay, so explain to me, what is, simple question, I said, what's my purpose of life? <laughs> simple, right? Purpose of life simple. on my foot, you know? <laughs> so he starts explaining that you have to be able to see that inside everything is this, this a spark of life. It's, there's this light that's there that's sustaining it at every moment. I said to him, I don't see any light. I look, I see walls. I see glass. I don't see any light. What are you talking about? So he started explaining to me more and more. All I could get was that this is very sophisticated stuff. It's not simple. It's very um, nuanced. And there's a lot of detail over here. Nobody could have just made this up. But I didn't understand what he's saying. And finally, out of exhaustion, I just, okay, I'm leaving. I went upstairs and outdoors, and there's a park when you come outdoors from the synagogue there. And because it's Vancouver, there are tall trees. There's a, a, a row of very tall willows. You, I look up, I see these tall willows, and I said, I see they're not willows. They're beams of light. <laughs> they're beams of light coming down. Okay, the, I, I, I guarantee there were no psychedelics involved. Even though it's 1970s and it's Vancouver, but but the beams of light. I I I these guys were staying, the four of them, they're four Bachram on Merkishlichus. And the one I was talking to, his name was Yossi Hecht. And I didn't know at the time, but he was one of the star Bachram in 770. A Chazer repeated the Rebbesichas, and, and um, he became the Rav of Elat. So I went over to the house where they were staying every day and just argued with them, argued with them, and argued with them, and ridiculed him, and tore into him, and then came back the next day for more, next day for more. Um, so I fought a lot with it. But um, if they told me that Jewish people do this or Jewish people do that, I ended up doing that. Like one day I say to him, so I'll see you again tomorrow. He says, well, no, don't come tomorrow. What's wrong with tomorrow? He says, well, it's a, it's a, it's a fast day. I said, it's not Yom Kippur. He says, no, it's a different fast day. What is it? And he, he said something that I interpreted in my mind as tissue bob. I don't know what bob has to do with tissues or tissues have to do with bob. <laughs> but that's what I thought it was. Oh, I never heard of such a thing. What is that? He says, just don't come tomorrow. He didn't think it would be a good idea for me to come tomorrow. So... So the next day, so I was I was taking care of somebody's home, and I had invited a couple of friends to stay there with me. And then in that just happened to be in that neighborhood, in the Jewish neighborhood. And um, one of them asked me, he says, Freeman, how come you're not eating? I said, I'm not eating today. I just don't feel like eating. Now, come on, why are you not eating? I said, I'm fasting. Why are you fasting? Because I'm Jewish. And it's a Jewish fast day. That was it. I just felt if he told me that this is a Jewish fast day, hey, I'm Jewish. I'm supposed to fast. Why? I mean, why not? And bit by bit, I I found things out. And I don't think I decided to or felt um, that's a good thing to do. It's just he told me or I found out that that's what Jews do. Like, I'll give you an example. So... 
um, it came to to um, the school year. And of course, at the very beginning of the school year, come the Yomim Tovim. All of a sudden, it's this Rosh Hashanah, and we just started school. And, and I had a huge load of courses on my on my head that year. I was I was the undergrad society president. I was teaching guitar lessons to pay my way through university. And I had an, an extra heavy load of intense courses. Um, and now they now they tell me that Rosh Hashanah, you don't go to school. What? Okay, so I started keeping Shabbos already, understood. And that was very hard because I'm I'm a professional musician. To go for 26 hours without playing my instrument, that, that was like insanity. Okay, but I did that. Now they're telling me Rosh Hashanah as well. Rosh Hashanah, I never heard of this. All my life as a kid, you know, Rosh Hashanah, you go to shul in the, in, the, in the evening and you have a dinner and then you go to work the next day. What's what you're talking about? Okay, I remember sometimes, yeah, we spend the... I remember once my father had told me when I was younger, he said, this is what a Jew does. To be a Jew, you go to synagogue twice a year, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. You sit down when the rabbi says to sit down. You stand up when the rabbi says to stand up. And you sit there for his entire sermon. And for this, you'll be forgiven for all your sins. So that, <laughs> but, but that you don't go to school on Rosh Hashanah, I never heard of. Okay. But they told me, so I, that's, Shabbos is enough. I, I've got school. I got things to do. I'm a professional musician. I can't do this. So in the morning, I got up and I couldn't go to school. I couldn't go. I said, but stupid, I've got to go to school. I can't go. Okay, so what am I going to do? Am I going to sit here? Okay, so I went to shul. And uh, I figured, well, the second day they told me it's actually rabbinic. It's not the same. If you are going to go to school, go on the second day. But the second day, the same thing. Second day, I went to, uh, I went to show. Anyways, it, it, was, it was more of like that duck meeting in the water type of thing. And of course, that's what you're going to do. But what I really wanted and desired was to understand these things that Yossi Hacht had been telling me, to find the 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 inner the inner wisdom of Judaism and make that very real. That was really what I was interested in. The rest was just my kishkas pulling me along. Years and years later, okay, so we'll go like 30 years in the future from then. And I, the, we started a project called Ask Moses. It was Chaim Nachum Kunin's idea, Levi Kunin's idea. And we had this Ask Moses idea. And I get uh, a message from, from somebody who says, listen, I'm a professor of Greek philosophy. I've published books on Plato and, and dialogue and so on. And I've got a big problem. And he described very similar to my own my own quandaries, conundrum. He said, I got a big problem. My problem is I'm attracted to Judaism. Like my mother-in-law sent me to go and buy some kosher meat, and I was in the Jewish neighborhood, and my kishkas are pulling me. My kishkas. But he said, but my mind, everything I know, everything I've written and published, everything I lecture on is completely in opposition to all of this. Help me. <laughs> so to make peace between the kishkas and the mind. So so that's that's always 
the struggle. The mind is meant to rule the kishkas or the heart. And Awaken what's within. Awaken what's inside the heart. You know, the the next person to come uh, come along was a friend of Yossi Hecht, a uh, fellow Minkovitz from Montreal. Yeah. And fellow uh, Minkovitz came there to be a, a teacher in the in the day school there in Vancouver. And but Yossi Hech told him, you know, watch out for this kid, you know, take care of him. So basically, I was there every Shabbos, and um, they opened up, really opened up their home. I mean, he's only a few years older than me, but uh, I could just walk into their home any any day, just open the door, walk in, and sit down. And he never, he made a policy of never telling me what to do. He never told me wrapped filling. He never told me where it sits, is, never told me anything. And, and, and he later told me that he had purposely, deliberately made this a policy because he felt that I had to take it on when I was ready, each thing. And really, he didn't want me to go too fast because if I would go too fast, I'd drop it just as quickly. So there, there was always a struggle. There still is a struggle. Like I said, you're I'm a wannabe. I want to be a chassid, but but give me some time. <laughs> I'll get there eventually. It's a lifetime. <laughs> so this, a struggle means just that it goes it goes deeper and it goes deeper. Um. So so for me, the the chassidus and the learning wasn't just a subject to learn. It was, I need this to survive. If I don't get this, I'm my, I'm going to rip be ripped to pieces. My head and my kishka is going to rip apart. I need this to hold myself together. So, if you grow up in an environment where this is the this is the subject, this is what you're supposed to learn. You, you want to be a good yeshiva bacher. You, you've got to learn this stuff and say it over and be good at it. So then you're scratching the surface. If you're saying to yourself, I, I, I feel torn apart, and this is the only thing that can glue me back together again. So I'm going to look very deeply into it, and not just the, the surface level, what are the words saying? What is this speaking to me? What is it saying to me? And what is my life telling me about these words? It, it becomes a very different dynamic. Um, and, like and, and that's really where the daily doses come from, is trying to find in, in each of these teachings how, this, how my life relates to this, how this relates to my life. Uh, one way you could say it is looking at this as a commentary on, on my life, but I like to see it the other way around. In what way is my life a commentary on this? Wow. What is God teaching me? about these teachings by putting me through this kind of a life. That's where it comes from. Uh, you know, what I think is so important about what you shared is a lot of people in the in their confusion, um, a lot of people will, you know, let go, right? Leave Maybe leave Yiddishkeit because they don't understand it and they think, oh, well, this, this can't make sense. I need to find something else. But for someone like you, who by nature, you know, you want to know more, I think digging deeper helps a person maybe overcome those feelings of like frustration and confusion and which, which so 
which brings us, I guess, well, I to actually want to add question. to that that sometimes, yeah. sometimes if you see someone that that's kind of leaving or, or falling apart, from what you shared, I just took that sometimes you need to fall apart in order to dig deeper, or you're falling into place. You know, like it's 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 the good kind of, of falling. Um, so if I can quote quote uh, Lisa Miller, I don't know if you've had her on the show, but but she wrote a. Uh, she's a she's a very on the hand, one hand very rigorous um psychologist that she backs everything up with data but she is really the the guru on psycho uh, on on spirituality and psychology and she's a nice jewish mamala um so she writes about adolescent depression and she's she writes that um, basically, if an adolescent doesn't go through a d- depression, real depression, at some point, there's something wrong. It's the rule rather than the exception. I- if you're growing up, you're going to go through a time of a depression. The difference is that if a child, an adolescent, has no spirituality in their life, nothing beyond surface level, there's no depth to, to life, never had those discussions, then depression becomes a pit, a pit you fall into. Maybe you'll get out, maybe you won't. If you do have spirituality, then depression is a tunnel. And it takes you from one place to a place way, way beyond that you couldn't have gotten to without that tunnel. So the same thing with everything. Like, like we, we can't avoid the bitter times in life, the, the struggles in life. We, but what we can see them as is this is a journey that's getting me somewhere. I'm growing through this. I'm becoming something. I'm, I, this is my cocoon to become the butterfly. And you have to dissolve and just fall to pieces. You know, the, 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 the caterpillar becomes a mush inside that cocoon, literally a mush. There's only a few cells left, 72 cells left of, uh, that from before and the rest becomes a mush and it and it consumes that mush to become an entirely different being so so those times of decay um can be very fruitful for us if we we have something to hang on to but we got to have that thing to hang on to yeah i think for people who and depression and anxiety are are so prevalent today especially i think if people had that mindset you know, feeling depressed only means that I'm, you know, yearning and searching. And it's like, I'm still in the cocoon. I just am looking for a way to become that butterfly. That's, you know, it might help a lot of people understand the the feelings that come up, you know, the negative feelings that show up, you know, especially as a, as a teenager. Um, Again, our advantage as a human being is we don't work from the past. We work from the future. Intelligence of you, intelligence means I have a certain vision that I'm trying to achieve or what could be achieved. And I'm doing things now because of what will be in the future. Emotions are all about what happened to me, what did they do to me, why am I this way? And it doesn't get you anywhere. But intelligence is, is who do I want to be? How do I want to be? And perhaps this will take me there. And therefore, it's all worth it because of where I'm going to. Uh, so 
So Hasidus is concentrated, intense intelligence that's there to show you, yes, you have you you have a place you're going to, and who you think you are now is not who you really are, and you're going to be way beyond that, and you can come there. You know, one thing among many that you're known for is being able to take a wealth of knowledge and information and condense it into these golden nuggets of and and Rivka and I both love, we love quotes. Um, I love the daily wisdom. And I do it every single day. And I think that it just sets the tone. You know, it's kind of like, I know it's, I know it encompasses so much, but in a, in a nutshell. And so we would love to be able to kind of take some of these bigger topics that might be, them, that can take years to study, you know, them and really fully understand them and gather snippets, um, like a practical way for us to understand these things, or maybe like, you know, if, if I can frame a quote or frame these little bits of wisdom, and put them up, they can serve as reminders of important things. So I'll just put in my little ad over here. If you go to Chabad.org slash Daily Dose, um, Daily Dose, that's it. It's probably the old, the longest lasting subscription on the internet because I started it, I think, in 1996. Um and still wow. going. It was originally called Souls on Wire, and then became the Daily Dose of Wisdom. They can be little meditations, because you were talking about emotions and and the mind, and what these little meditations can do. Is tra- we can transform through the meditation. They're very relatable. Well, well that's why I, mean, I insisted. It's a lifetime in, work, but it's 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 In helpful. the books, I insisted there'd be a lot of white space there, because I felt, okay, either the words of the white space is for you to think about the words. Right. And take it and think about it the whole day long. You have something memorable to think about. And, you know, I remember certain people who had a very strong impact on me. And a lot of it was that they were able to give me a little nugget to to hold on to. People I remember like Abba Paltiel, Zalgazunzain, um, who was able, you go to him and you talk and talk and talk, and he thinks, and then he tells you one thing, and those words you just hold on to and hold on to and hold on to. Oh, we, we want to do that with you, and um, I think that we do that with our daily doses. We read it in the morning, and and we hold on to it. So we wanted to do that in our episode here today. Touch upon some some relevant topics or some some of our st- emotional struggles that we go through and get a daily dose of wisdom from you. The first one we'd like to ask you about is boundaries. There's an assumption that many people have that religion is confining and limiting, yet like you share in your story, a Torah life has and Hasidus has offered you a freedom that feels very real and true. So if you have a daily dose for us on boundaries and how we can reconcile these two seemingly paradoxical views. I think one the one that comes to mind was one I wrote very early along in the game. Um, it's in Bringing Heaven Down to Earth, Self-Surrender, and... Okay, I'll read it. Yeah, I don't have to do that, but I'll read it. People think self-surrender means to say, I have no mind, I have no heart, I only believe and follow, for I am nothing. This is not self-surrender. This is a denial of the truth. For it is saying there is a place where godliness cannot be, namely your mind and your heart. God did not give you a brain that you should abandon it, or a personality that you should ignore it. These are the building materials from which you are to forge a sanctuary for him. The earthly home 
in which the divine presence yearns to dwell. Don't run from the self with which God has entrusted you. Instead, connect to its true essence above. Let every cell shine with the light of self-surrender. Wow. So if a person's going to be, in other words, a blind fanatic and turn off his mind, turn off his heart, what does he accomplish? Why Why were you created to do that? Every cell of your body, every neuron has to be engaged. And they're only going to be engaged if you think it through, ask the questions. You know, you're dedicated. You want to get to the truth. But you only get to the truth by asking questions. You can, if you have faith, you can ask questions. If your faith is weak, then you're afraid. If I ask this question, I might have to change my lifestyle. But if you really feel, no, I know I've got truth over here, then you, you're not afraid to ask any question. Yeah, I love that. My daughter um, went to Soha Seminary in Pittsburgh. It's a seminary of the arts. And when she came to seminary, she was feeling a little lost. And I don't know if you know Rabbi Herman, Aaron Herman. He was yeah, the yeah. And mm-hmm. as soon as she started learning the classes there, she, she straight away felt found, but she felt like it was too fast. And he said to her, ask any question you want. Just, just go for it. Let it all go. Ask any single question you want to ask. Don't mm-hmm. worry about what feeling like oh, I shouldn't ask. And she said that helped her so much, like just feeling comfortable or, or just like being able to express herself and not hold back mm-hmm. got her to feel inspired and connected. You know, it says in the Gomorrah that uh, there was a debate, a conflict of opinions between the, the heavenly Masifta, the heavenly academy, and God. God had one opinion, and the heavenly academy had another opinion. So <laughs> how could that be? So the Rebbe asks the question, how could that be? How could they? I mean, it's God's Torah, after all. If it's God's Torah, how can you disagree with him? And the Rebbe's explanation is, this is Torah. In Torah, you have to say, what makes sense to me? And if it doesn't make sense to you, you can't say, well, that's the way it is. You have to argue. When it comes to doing the mitzvah, the mitzvah is the way Jews do the mitzvah. That's it. That's what it says in Shulchan Aruch. This is the way we do it, and that's it. But when it comes to learning about it, then you can say, why? What? Maybe we're supposed to eat matzah in the sukkah. Why not? You know, you don't eat the matzah in the sukkah, but but you, or but you ask the question because otherwise you're not learning. You're not engaging those neurons if you don't ask the question. But I have this problem every time I teach. I'm waiting and waiting for questions, and I'm not getting them. Uh, the only place I can get questions from are from 10-year-olds. After the age of 10, they're not asking me questions. It's hard. They get conditioned into just, is this going to be on the test? You know? <laughs> well, I feel like we've always, we've always naturally wanted to ask the questions. I think we also have to be in an environment conducive to that. Yeah. In a healthy environment, you know, questions are good. But when they're being shut down and, then, and people don't have that opportunity, then that can feel very stifling. So that's also important. Like the enemy your of questions, went to seminary. Yeah. The enemy of questions is curriculum. Yeah. When the teacher feels, I've got this material to, I, I got to finish the material. I got to get through material. 
then there's no room for questions. It's because the curriculum states on it everything that the students are supposed to learn, meaning that if it's not on the curriculum, the students aren't supposed to learn it. And it doesn't say anywhere in the curriculum that the students are supposed to ask their own personal questions and feel they've dealt with it. I mean, you get nudniks as well who are just asking the question to disrupt and so on. You have to, but you have to respect that as well. Children, everybody has to learn how to ask good questions because that's the only way that it becomes personal and part of you. And you also have to, very often I've had about the age of 20 or so on, where they start asking very fundamental questions about life and looking elsewhere outside of Judaism, even though they grew up in the yeshiva, at that age, they want to look elsewhere. And they'll ask all sorts of questions and you say to them, but you learned the answer to that. So no, I didn't learn the answer to that. Yes, it's in everything. And you show them. It says here, it says there. That's the answer to it. But it can't be. Why can't it be? In their mind, it can't be because I have the question. And if I already learned the answer, obviously that's not the answer because I have the question. No, no, it's there. It is there. But we teach all the answers before anybody has the questions. Right. <laughs> I noticed that contrast when my daughter went to seminary and she felt comfortable to ask all her questions mm-hmm. where she didn't in school. Um, no, there is when you have a question. You have to have the intelligence and the skills to be able to to look for the answer. Right. Um, so, um, like, what is an answer? Why is the answer a good answer? Where do you go for answers? How do you do that? And there you need a guidance of a good teacher. Often the teacher doesn't know how to find what is an answer, why is this an answer, what is the question really. We have at Chabad.org, Ask the Rabbi. For many years I was the director of Ask the Rabbi. I haven't been for a few years now. But whenever we hired somebody, the first thing I would tell them is, we don't answer questions. We answer people. And the question the person is answering is not necessarily, usually not, a question the person really has. People don't know to how to articulate the real questions that they have. So you have to guide them to what really is their question and show them how this really is an answer. Right. And that's really what we need to learn. Do you know, even Ida and I were preparing uh, questions with you. One of the questions here, we were like, one second, we're not even sure what we want to ask. We have to understand <laughs> this concept yeah in order to ask the question, <laughs> right? delving deeper into it. But we often find that when we prepare our questions, we realize we really need to understand, really have a deep understanding of what we want to ask in, in order to really ask the question in the right way, you know? And yeah, and then you'll have a better idea of what an answer would be. And sometimes yeah. you've already found, once you've defined your question, you've already found what found your the answer is. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then we're right. like, well, so, well, let's skip that one. <laughs> okay. So what so, was that question? It was actually the um, mind, we, we've got it here. It's the third question. It's the mind ruling over the heart. When we are seeking a sense of congruency between our minds and our hearts or on whether to express our emotions or inhibit them, what is a daily dose that can help us better understand the relationship between our thoughts and our emotions? And then we just started getting into a discussion about is a thought sometimes an emotion? Um, is there a difference? What is the difference between thoughts and emotions? Um, is the thought what leads to the emotion? <laughs> we just started to getting into a whole discussion about that and and mind over matter and um, we just thought and optimism us, versus pessimism. Yeah, and then we, we went into of, like <laughs> we thought if you give us a daily dose, that's going to help us define things. 
Oh, I think your your answer is in Tanya, but uh, uh, yeah. there there is a section in the chabad.org slash daily dose. Go there and there's a section called body and soul meditations. And that's where I just collected some that, that are directly dealing with really mind and heart. I think it's a central topic in, in Tanya and Hasidus. Um, there's also, if you've ever watched Kabbalah tunes, have you done those? So there's Kabbalah tunes. You can find them at Kabbalah.org or you can just go to KabbalahTunes.com. Takes you to the same place. Kabbalah tunes are, I think, 101 little animations starring Rabbi Infinity. And he has a mechanical pet, a robot pet called Fival. And <laughs> Fival works on, on, on a uh, mind-to-heart interface. So whatever is the state of Rabbi Infinity's mind and heart gets reflected in Fival. So and he has to control his mind to get Fival to... So Fival basically acts like a heart to, to, to Rabbi Infinity's mind. So you can watch... The Fival Suite over there, the the animations in the Fival Suite that that's that I made for parents and children to watch together. Um, the the so I I don't see anybody really talking about this, but there's a fascinating um, um, what do you call it? a taxonomy of the human being that the Alter Rebbe delivers in Tanya. Um, What's most fascinating is how he separates thought from thought. <laughs> you can't say it. In English, there isn't a way to say it. But, well, there's seichel, the intellect, your mind. And then there's machshava. Machshava, we actually, in psychology, have a word for it. They call it endophasia, which means the speaking that's going on inside your mind. You, inter- you internalize speech. And you're speaking to yourself. Like you'll see little kids when they're playing with their dollies, talking about what they're doing, they're playing with their blocks and talking about what they do. And by the age seven or eight, that disappears. It doesn't really, it doesn't totally disappear. We still end up talking to ourselves uh, once in a while, but it doesn't really disappear. It, it gets internalized, becomes part of you, becomes machshava. Like the, the, the Talmud says, the Gemara says that a child doesn't have machshava. There doesn't have that internal speech. And it only starts slowly developing around eight years old and then becoming at the at the age of Basar Bar Mitzvah, it starts getting very loud and adult um, for most of us, or many of us, some louder than others. Um, so this is what the, the Alter Rebbe calls the Lavushamachshava. It's a Lavush, it's clothing. You have internal clothing. Now it just gets glossed over. People don't talk of it to describe what is this, but it, it's such a powerful concept because by saying that all those thoughts are clothing, you're telling uh, telling me it's not me. My thoughts are not me. Me? Who's me? Well, if I get to my emotions, and that's more me. When I get to the way that I think, how my mind operates, that's more me. But really, even that isn't really me. Who's really me is this divine spark inside me that uh, that I can't comprehend at all. But the me, the, the self that I'm aware of, 
that's not me at all. That's just clothing, clothing for, for my soul. Those thoughts could change. They could be different thoughts. Instead of thinking those thoughts, I could think those thoughts instead. So that's so empowering to say because is, people believe the things that I'm thinking is me. And if I'm thinking that, therefore, that's what I have to do. That's who I have to be. And I'm imprisoned by that. Don't so, believe everything you think. Yes. Yeah, so instead you say, well, I don't think that. I'll think something else instead. You know, there's so many people when I tell them that, they say, what? What? So what's wrong? You can't control what you think. So why not? Instead of I thinking actually, about that, think about this. Right. I actually like this analogy, uh, this example that Shay's Taub, I was listening to his Tanya class, and he says, mm -hmm. just think of a door and the thoughts are knocking at the door. So the, the thoughts are there, they're knocking. It's about, are you going to open the door and let them in? That's that's a, a nice way of looking at it. Another way is something we use all the time. We have these devices and we look at our devices and we see these things happening on top of the screen and all the, uh, the and those are like little thoughts. They're coming up out of your device. It's sort of your device thinking and sending you all these things. And you can choose where I want to go to. I can choose. Do I want to go to Facebook? Do I really want to go there? Uh, all the all the uh, evidence demonstrates the more time you spend in Facebook, the more depressed you become. So do I really want to go there? Or do I want to see what my family's chatting about in WhatsApp? Or maybe I want to actually get something done, <laughs> write something, do something. I can choose there. So your thoughts are sending up the usually emotions are just bubbling up and percol percolating all these little thoughts that are pop bump, like these icons on your screen. And you look at them and you decide, what do I want to focus on over here? If any of those, or maybe something else. It's an interface that I can choose from and decide what. But the last thing I want to do is identify with it. And even though these thoughts, yeah, they're telling me something about me, um, they're telling me mostly about very superficial emotions, mostly. Okay, sometimes it's a really it's a, it's an emotion that really has to be dealt with. I need a proper time to deal with it. So I'll tell those thoughts, listen, you are very important thoughts. This is something that has to be dealt with. I'm going to make an appointment for you at a time that I can deal with it. You know? So I'll make an appointment. And if you turn up at that time, that means you really are important. If, if at that time comes and I can't remember what it was, that means you weren't important. Right? You didn't come for your appointment. So, so the, the, that's so empowering to know thoughts are not mind. They're not you. They're just bubbles. And it's up to you to choose what you want to engage in over there and what you don't want to engage in. So it's actually a method that's used in therapy where a person will schedule a time to worry or a time to be upset about something, whatever it is that's bothering them. So that way they feel like validated, right? And, and however they're feeling like, okay, this really bothers me, but um, I don't want it to take over my whole day. So I'm going to schedule a time to think about it. And that does two things. First of all, it frees up your mental space to do what you need to do. And at the same time, it helps you like filter out the stuff that is is important and the stuff that isn't. Because if you're still thinking about something and 
in many hours from now, maybe it's something worth paying attention to. Whereas if you forgot what you were worrying about, chances are maybe it was your mood or something else like you sleep well, or there's so many other things that there's so many other things that you can point to that are the reasons that you're feeling, you know, negativity. And it's not always the situation. It's not always the thing that happened. And so I think to get perspective, it's important to be able to say, um, you know, let me revisit this, you know, even in a relationship, like let's revisit this in a couple hours and see how we feel about it. So that way we're not like consumed by the moment and the mood in the moment. So this is where we're talking about the mind, mind over heart. This is where the mind has to be in control uh, over the heart, not as whipping the heart into shape and saying, no, don't be, don't feel that way as I can't say the highest. I do feel that way. But what the mind can say is, okay, the direction you're going in is not a good direction. Why on earth would I want to think about those things? And I'm thinking about very negatively, but I'm smarter than that. I can decide instead to think about it this way instead and go in this direction. I can decide to, instead of thinking about negative things that I can't do anything about, let me think about positive things instead. Maybe I can't do anything about them at all, but at least they're positive things. So, so that's where you need your mind. And what's beautiful is that when the mind starts doing those things, that's when the heart truly flourishes. And when the heart really can take you to the places you want to go to, because the mind on its own is never going to do anything. It's just going to keep on thinking. It's the heart that says, yeah, that's beautiful. Let's do it. But the, the heart just wants the mind to lead. It wants your mind to say, I want to think about this. I want to think about that. You know, my, my wife has a beautiful meditation she does where she thinks about each of the children. and. She thinks about everything that's good about that child and says, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem. And you can see her sitting there, sitting there on a couch saying, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem. She's not just saying Baruch Hashem, she's thinking about this child and everything beautiful about the child. And then, of course, grandchildren come along and then you start saying Baruch Hashem about the grandchildren. You could sit there for a very long time eventually. Oh, no, I think that is great because any parents can acknowledge that it's not, parenting is one of the most difficult tasks we have. And um, and we can always focus on the negative, right? The the bad behaviors, or we could focus on the good behaviors. But we know that where focus goes, we have this quote: "Where focus goes, energy grows." So when we notice the good things and the beautiful things about our children, those things start to flourish. And the same applies to us. You know, if we focus on the positive thoughts and and bring those in, then we'll start to see more of them. Like kind of like gratitude, those the gratitude practice can do that. It's not denial. It's not denying that those things are there. Okay, they're there. And and these thoughts are coming up and so on. But it's not doesn't help me to think about it. You know how much time people spend thinking, what do they think about me? What What are they saying about me behind my back? What do people think about me? And like, how on earth are you going to know? Like, you're going to figure that out? I mean, the last person on earth I would ask uh, how do people think about me is myself. <laughs> Anybody else, not myself, because I'm going to have the most skewed, ridiculous view of it. I'm so subjective. So how am I gonna, besides which, humans are so complicated, they themselves don't know if that what they think of you, if they are thinking about you. So why waste time on that? Instead, I could be thinking, 
Um, what can I do for these people? What can I learn from these people? Uh, how can I get along with these people? What can I do that 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 we can work together? Those are useful thoughts. And same thing with and that's just one one instance, but there's so many instances we get caught up We're in at useless it. thoughts. Use, useful thoughts and useless thoughts. And right. often, sometimes we just we all we have in our mind is a bunch of useless thoughts. And I like <laughs> that you said, like you have your phone and you can choose which thoughts, but sometimes we have to go and choose another thought altogether. Like mm-hmm. just create another one. And that could be even like thinking about Hashem. I mean, it should be. Let's divert to thinking about something holy instead of all these useless thoughts. The daily oh, dose for that day. That's why we need the daily dose. <laughs> Always have something ready to think about. Something yeah. ready to think about. Like you've got your cur- curriculum for the day. In case of I need a thought to think about, these are the thoughts that I that I could be thinking about. And constructive ones. But there's so many people, when I talk to them about this, they say, what? How can you do that? I can't imagine that. What are you talking about? They're... I mean, there are people who, when I say about thinking inside your mind, they look at me, you have voices in your mind or something? (laughs) They think I'm crazy. Um, I think it's essential for growth to be able to hear. Maybe it's not a voice. Maybe it's imagery. Maybe it sounds it's something. To hear what's going on inside you and to monitor that and take the reins of your thoughts and your just like you take the reins of what you say and what you do, take the reins of your of your thoughts. You can become a very different person that way. So Have always good thoughts ready to think about. Sounds great. I think it's one of the hardest things to do. And that's why probably like you say, people look at you like, how is that even possible to change a thought? But I found like to be really profound and it's possible. And sometimes in like a situation where you really, really, really want something like, for example, in order for you to spend some time with your child, let's say in a situation where you have the opportunity to really bond with them, but you're not able to, if you're holding on to certain thoughts that are going on in your life or certain opinions that you have, whatever it may be, you have to let go of a thought in order to really enjoy that moment. So it's either I'm going to hold on to this thought or I'm going to enjoy this moment with my child. So I think in times like that, and then you see, wow, if I really want this, it is possible to let go of the thought. You see that it's possible when you really put your mind to it. So then you've had that profound moment where you were really able to do it. And when you're in a hard moment again, when you feel like, is it possible for me to actually change my thought? You know that you can. Uh, Also, when you were sharing about us human beings, that who are we to judge what other people are thinking because we're being so subjective I love the quote, don't believe everything you think. I love this thought of there's useless thoughts and useful thoughts, and we want to go choose the useful thoughts. Sometimes we have the useless thoughts that can lead to anger, pain, resentment. And we wanted to know if you can, when, when we wanted you to give us a daily dose for when someone finds themselves easily triggered or angered or hurt by someone, if you have a daily dose that we can keep handy to overcome these tendencies. Yeah somebody hurt you badly or offended you or something like that, you've got a struggle to go through. And what you have to know is that this is a very positive struggle. You're not wasting your time. Because if you can overcome this, you'll be a far, far greater person. And it must be that the whole reason that this happened to you is so that you could become a greater person. Um, 
So you could be in this struggle where you're saying, oh, he did this to me, I'm going to do, oh, I shouldn't be thinking that. Uh, but I am thinking that. But I shouldn't be thinking that. But I am thinking, but I shouldn't be thinking that. Oh, I'm terrible for thinking these, th these thoughts. You're not getting anywhere. Instead, what you do is you say, okay, next time I meet this person, what am I going to say? I need to say something that will heal. Okay, I'm going to say this, but I'm not going to mean it. So I can't say something that I don't mean. How I'll try again. I'm going to say it, meaning it. No, it's not there yet. I'll struggle with, with some more. Let me try again. Let me try and reverse it. Let me first of all think, where is this person coming from? Why did the person do these things? What, what's the struggle that he's going through? What's happening inside him? What can I do to help him heal from this? Now, let me try again. I'll say this. And you can work with this, and it can go on for days. It can go on for days. But it's not just you are healing. You're healing the other person as well. Um, there was, I have a daily dose on this, but I don't remember where. There was I've got an administrator of a school. Which, which one is that? Advice on anger. Thoughts on anger. Well, there, there's there's a section actually in the daily dose. Where is it? Um, there's 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 yeah. Thoughts on anger is a section there. Oh, there is. In I, the I daily found, dose. I did your meditation on that when I felt hurt, and I found it helpful. I advice it. on anger. Yeah. Prepare yourself with this meditation. Is that the one? Yes, that's the one. Prepare but I also yourself. want to hear what he was going to say about the about oh. what he was going to say before. I'll, I'll, I'll say this meditation first. Prepare yourself with this meditation, and when you feel anger overcoming you, run through it in your mind. Know that all that befalls you comes from a single source, that there is nothing outside of that oneness to be blamed for any event in the universe. And although this person who insulted you or hurt you or damaged your property is granted free choice, and is held culpable for his decision to do wrong, that's his problem. That it had to happen to you, that is between you and the one above. So that takes you to this place where, okay, I'm in this situation, feeling this way. This is God holding me by my hand and taking me higher, saying to me, Svi, you can make it, you can go higher. It's not, it didn't come from this person, from a human being, or from some circumstance. It came from a Kodesh Baruch Hu, from him. And he cares about me. He wants me to grow up. He put me in this situation. Okay, that's where this, this particular meditation takes me to. But then, then what do I do? So this other situation was, I was about to, to say, the administrator of a school in Israel who wrote to the Rebbe that he, uh, in running at the school, he ended up having to lay somebody off. And now this person who was laid off is going around bad-mouthing the school and making, a, making real problems, real trouble for the school. And they can't talk to him. What is he supposed to do? So the Rebbe wrote back to him, you should sit in your room and bring into your heart deep love for this person 
and his enmity will disappear. Uh, that's amazing. You're supposed to sit there and think, Rahmanas and this person, look what's happening to this person. Why? Why? I really like this person. I see all sorts of good things about this person. That's what you're supposed to be thinking. Uh, your mind is saying, but he's getting at me, he's doing these. No, no, think about the good about this person and how they really want to be good. And the mess that they've gotten themselves into. Think about that. And the not only that, the Rebbe didn't just say that's going to make it easier for you to deal with it. It's going to change that person. And I can tell you, I've had experiences very vivid where that's worked. I remember once, a while ago, a while back, I have certain meetings where I had to deal with a certain person who everything I said, he had to say the opposite. Everything. Rip it, rip it apart. And and didn't settle with just disagreeing, but with the ad hominem attacks. And, and it, it was so, so difficult because I knew I knew better than him. And not not because I'm smarter, because I had more experience. And why does he have to come? It's so difficult to deal with. And then there's going to be another meeting in two days. So for two days, I'm thinking, he's going to say this. I'm going to say that. And he's going to say this. I'm going to say that. Okay, so let me stop. What's the best thing for me to say in that situation? Why is he doing this? What's hurting him? Obviously, he needs recognition. He feels he's not getting enough recognition. And it's true. I'm not recognizing him. I'm not giving enough, him enough credit. And he should get that. He deserves that. And I should. And so I'll talk this way to him. And I rehearsed the lines in my mind, how I could do this, and felt for him. And really, there are things I like about this person. And yeah, there's a lot of things I like about this person, okay? Literally, the first thing that happened in that next meeting was that this person says, Svi, I'm really sorry for being such a nudnik at the last meeting. Before I had said a word. So, so thoughts help. Like it's in the Gemara, Machshava Moelis. Thoughts in your mind about another person really affect that other person. If that's so with somebody who's a stranger, I mean, it's a fellow Jew, but it's still a a stranger, so much more so when it's somebody who lives in the same house as you, your own child, your spouse, your good thoughts about that person heal you and heal the other person. So it's tremendous power that we're given, huge power that we're given, <laughs> and we waste it to, to take advantage of the power you're given. Yeah, it's a very hard thing to do when you're feeling very hurt by someone and to then just like change your thought to think of the positive things and how you can heal them. Um, that's It's a hard thing to do. A hard thing to do. People pay hundreds of dollars to belong to a gym and go there and have a personal co- coach for thousands of dollars and work out. It. And it's very, very hard. Why are they do it? Because I'm going to get stronger, I'm going to be slimmer, I'm going to live longer, whatever they're doing. It's a long-term investment for them. A long-term investment. And here, do something. Yes, it's mental exercise. And the, the hard part about it is mainly making yourself a little small and admitting that you were wrong at certain points, and the other person does have some good points. But the, the, the what you get from it, you, it's unimaginable the amount that you get from it. It's a little bit of hard. Life as a human being is hard. 
Yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so trying to make life easy is actually making it harder. And acknowledging that life is hard makes it less hard. And that's kind of turning conventional wisdom on its head because we spend so much time trying to make our lives easy because the path of least resistance is to not put in the work and to not recognize that if we actually go through the discomfort that we have to go through when we acknowledge that life is not supposed to be easy and work through the hard days and work through the challenges, maybe that's when the shift starts to happen. I've also seen that shift um, when I've worked at that, but I, I, I have also seen it not shift when I've worked at that. Um, I'm trying to remember um, one of the daily doses. <laughs> There's so many now, I, I've lost track of them. Um, but you know what I'm saying? Sometimes you can do, you can have that thought and really feel like, you know, I have love for this person and and you feel like you've shifted, but you, you don't feel that in the other person. So the, there are, the, the, I mean, there are strategies you can use in thinking about the other person. For one thing, throughout life, you always, this is, this is I think, a, a central teaching of the Baal Shem Tov, is to, when you, you see other people, to only see the good in them. And it's a struggle sometimes, because immediately what you see is what you don't like. So you're supposed to sit there, and this is your meditation. What what can I learn from this person? What's wonderful about this person? And the, the more we, we train ourselves, the, the better we get at it. Um, I'm sure it makes you a better parent, better spouse, a better everything, to have a reflex that when you sit with another person, you're looking for for what can I learn from this person? The Rebbe put it once, be, a, be, a, be a, a, a salesperson in a store, a storekeeper. The storekeeper, when you walk into the store, the, the storekeeper doesn't see uh, oh, how nerdy you are, or how ugly you are, or whatever. The storekeeper sees, what can I sell this person? <laughs> and great. so when you meet another person, you're supposed to think, what can I learn from this person? The same thing. But w- w- what you were saying about it being hard. So here's. Um, one of my favorites. It's called earn to, li- earn to Living. All that can be cherished from this world, all that makes life worth living, is that which you have mined from its bowels through your own toil, fashioned from its clay by your own craft, fired in the kiln of your own heart, that for which you bruised your hands and wearied your limbs, for which you Beat back the beast inside you, for which you defied a mocking world. Oh, how precious, how resplendent the feast, a life forged by the hands of its own master. So in other words, I want to be able to look back at life and say, I did this, I made this. I don't want to look back at life and say, they sold me this, they taught me this, they did this to me, they I was the victim, I was the product, I was I did what everybody was doing. I don't want that. I want to say, look at the life I created. And it was hard work. Just like the muscle man wants to see those muscles, I want to see the life I created. 
I think it's a good investment. And sometimes you don't see the results right away, you know, in, in with mental or physical exercise, sometimes over time, then you begin to see, you know, results happening. And then you look back and you say, okay, well, now I get why I worked this hard. Um, so I think patience is also a big factor. One of my um, one of the, the memorable lines I have from uh, uh, Mashpia teacher, Rabavram Lipsker, he told me, Tzvi, weeds grow fast. So if you see something, if you see, if you when you're gardening and you see immediate results, you know it's a weed. <laughs> if it's worthwhile, <laughs> it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of right. time. And this is not really on topic, but it's something that um, many people struggle with, low self-esteem. And I think self-esteem plays a tremendous role in um, our ability to meet our potential and and have honest and open relationships with others. I mean, I should say self-esteem and confidence, you know, because they kind of are often used in the same context. But what would you say, you know, is there a, a like a snippet or daily or wisdom that you can share on the relationship between confidence and self-esteem? Self is is very, the whole idea of self is really, how do you say, over... Uh, overrated? Uh, overrated, yes. Yeah, self is very <laughs> overrated. Who you think you are is not who you are. And... All self, I'll tell you what self is. Self is simply, um, we're social animals. We collaborate together. We do things together. So when you're working with other people, you have to have an idea of who they are and what they're doing. And through that, as a child, you build a sense of, and what about me? I'm also one of them. So I create this thing called I, me. Because there's him, there's her, there's you, there's us, there's also me. Okay, now how do I figure out who me is? I sort of get an idea of, well, what are other people looking at when they're looking at me? How do they see me? And I make some sort of caricature of myself, inside myself, of this is who I am. Of course, it's not really you. It's just a good enough working model that you can socialize with other people and collaborate with other people. It's be a, be a member of society. That's all self is. It's not your real self. It doesn't even scratch the surface of your real self. So identifying with that and being obsessed with it is really a waste of energy. and doesn't get you very far. You have to know this is a flimsy model that serves a purpose, and that's it. It's not the real you. The real problem with self is what it's written on. Um, if it's written on... Um, erasable paper, you know, and I can just crumble it up and have another one. I think that's healthy. If it's written in stone, and it's very heavy and weighty, and you're obsessed over it, then you've got a problem. So a good, uh, a good sense of self is one that's malleable. Uh, it's, it's, it's putty in your hands, and you can adjust it and change it. I'm not the same person today as I was yesterday. And if somebody says to me, but yesterday you said like that, well, that's who I felt yesterday. I'm allowed to change my mind. You're okay with that. And then for you're okay to say, and I made a mistake. I was wrong. Okay. So 
It's just like self is very highly overrated. Self-esteem uh, in the 90s was very, very overrated. Uh, pe people came up with this and they thought that, that building self-esteem was the panacea to cure everything. And they really took it seriously. So, of course, it, psychologists did their job and they did the research and looked and measured, found ways to measure people's self-esteem along with their success rate and so on. And by the end of the 90s, We've, they had already concluded that it's not really the panacea that we think it is. There are people who have a lot of self-esteem, and they're sociopaths, and they're very destructive to others and to themselves. And there are other people who have self-esteem, and they're doing very well. Other uh, people who have self-esteem and successful. People who have self-esteem, and they're not successful. Maybe in general, they're a little happier than others, but overall, it doesn't seem to make much difference. And since then, the research is basically in looking for what's the nice, the perfect mix? Like, what makes a good mix? You need self-esteem to a certain degree along with what? What are the other things you need? Well, you need a a, a good uh, subjective sense of self. You don't want to overestimate and underestimate yourself. Um, you need to have respect for others. You need a sense of optimism. You, you you need a, a sense of humility as well. I mean, there are many, many things that you need, and self-esteem is, yes, one of them. Oh, so what it translates into is mostly uh, how we raise our children. That when you're raising your children, you want them to have, to be able, you want your child to be able to construct a healthy sense of self. Um. You don't want to imprint it on the child, tell the child, you're this, you are this. You want the child to be able to have those tools to, to know, what should I be thinking of myself? And, and you, can, you can assist the child. When a child comes along and says, I'm really bad at school, you can, and you can say, you, uh, the mistake would be to say, no, you're really good at school, or, well, maybe you could do something else. And I, the best thing to do is, well, let's sit down and take a look at what's happening. And well, what's happening, you know, I have my, half of my kids are teachers, so they tell me all this stuff. What's happening is that uh, you answer questions in class really well, but you don't seem to do so well on the test. And the, it looks like you're not studying. And maybe you don't, maybe you need to learn those study skills, or maybe it's the homework. Thing. Find what it is. So let's look more objectively and see. So that's, it's very healthy to bring up uh, a child who has a good sense of self and, and, and not a maladaptive sense. And what it means for our own selves is also, I think, principally, don't take that sense of self so seriously. Don't be obsessed with it. Um, instead of thinking, um, I'm worse than all these people or I'm better than all these people, you should be thinking, wow, these are really great people over here. How can I work together with them? Um, that's, yeah, I, I like what you said about when you know a child comes and says, "I did terribly." You know, I'm a terrible student. The answer is not you're an amazing student because that's doing more of the same, like mm -hmm. almost like labeling. And there's a there's a I like that um, that concept of assessing, right? Well, well, let's see what's going on. Um, it's teaching self assessment, right? And and you should know that the 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 issue that Hasidus deals with with about the self is not about the self itself. You need a sense of self. That's important. 
and and, and uh, you need to deal with others and you need to want to have some sort of sense of how you fit in with them uh, do they enjoy your company they do not enjoy your company you need to know those things so calls to ruach abriach nechemenu ruach makom nechemenu rabbi khanina ben dosa says that if, if people like you People like having you around. God likes having you around. So you need to know that. The problem is when we become obsessed with self, when that becomes so important for you that there's no room for other people. As soon as you start giving that self any real weight, then it blocks out everybody else. So the the hergish, that sense of that yourself becomes so real, you can almost touch it. And it becomes heavy like a stone and uh, dominates everything. That that's not good. Your sense of self should be something that's on a on a screen that you can erase with a flick of a finger and come up with something else. Okay. I didn't like this thing about myself. Okay, so I don't like that. I'll change that, you know? Don't take it so seriously. The late rabbi Dr. Tversky talked a lot about self-esteem and he said, I liked his you know, definition. He said that self-esteem is having a true and accurate awareness of, of your strengths and your weaknesses, like your capabilities and your limitations, and then adjusting optimally to reality to the degree that your perception of reality is correct. And, so that's a know, certain resilience, a resilience to be able to say, okay, I messed up. I did that wrong. I just discovered there's something, uh, some real fault in my personality that's not good. But I can handle that. Okay, that's great. I found out what needs to be fixed. Now I'm going to go about fixing that. As opposed to saying, oh no, if I did that wrong, uh, how, how could somebody like me do that? I'm, I'm a tzaddik and I did something wrong. You know, that's what the Alter Rebbe tells us, that, that a person who's down on himself because he thought the wrong thoughts is a person who doesn't recognize his place. He's full of himself. Who are you that you think you should be perfect all the time? So the, that if the self-esteem comes along with that sense of humility, they seem contradictory, but no, they're not. To have that real self-esteem, you need that humility to say, and I make mistakes, and therefore, but I'm still okay when I make mistakes because I can fix them up. That's beautiful. Nice. Um, we touched upon your beautiful handbook, Men, Women, and Kabbalah. In your introduction, I just noticed um, confidence and humility. Like you were confident, confident enough to take the Rebbe's teachings and put them into words. And you were also humble enough to write, I hope that I did justice to the Rebbe's teachings. I, I just like the combination of your introduction. And this is one of the reasons we wanted to interview you, because when we spoke to you on the phone, you shared with us some of your works in that you were doing in a confident way, yet we sensed a humility within you and, and we appreciated that. Just wanted to share that. But, um, yeah. It's not about, about me. I got to get this stuff out there. <laughs> well, well, we sent, well, we sensed that. and and If I don't promote it, nobody else is going to. <laughs> but you promoted it's the not, humility. It's my job. You're sharing <laughs> it's the job. This is the yeah. job. And we sense that, and that's why um, we appreciate your words on on confidence and self-esteem. But on, on this uh, topic of of your book, your little handbook, Men, Women, and Kabbalah, can you give us a daily dose of wisdom on relationships, how to improve relationships, and specifically how to overcome a cha if challenges arise? in? Look, the, the wisest thing I saw uh, um, 
you know, because of the wisdom behind it, or I think the the one that slapped me in the face, um, and I, I put it there. I found it in the Shalom, but it's really from Rabbi Moshe Kodavero. In his, he has a little book, Tomer Devora. So Moshe Kodavero was one of the great Kabbalists of Tzvaz. Um, he wrote that a man has to see himself as a conduit between the Shekhiya, the Shekhina above and the Shekhina below. You're a channel between the divine presence above and the divine presence below. The divine presence, the Shekhinah below, who is that? That's your wife. And your entire being is only to bring from the Shekhinah above to the Shekhinah below. That's who you are. And therefore, he says, uh, when you buy an, uh, a nice house, you say, I'm buying it to glorify the Shekhinah, who is my wife. And whatever you do in life, it's always to glorify the Shekhinah. And he goes to the point of saying that a man, therefore, is not allowed to have any pleasure from this world other than that which benefits his wife. Um, so, on the one hand, he says, like, wow, well, that's very strong words. On the other hand, I look back at my grandmother and grandfather, my mother and father, and uh, my own life, I see, yeah, that's how it works. And I remember vividly, one day, I'm sitting there, I must have been in my 20s, 30s, probably my 30s, and I'm trying to have a conversation with my father, who was a very black and white personality, and wasn't into anything, couldn't, didn't talk in the spiritual, that sort of thing, even though my mother was into all the spiritual stuff, and he was very... There's no gray areas, you know. And he's sitting there reading newspaper, and I said, but Dad, like, don't you ever think about, like, your purpose in life? And he looks up from his paper and says, son, my purpose in life is to keep your mother happy. And he goes back to his newspaper. <laughs> I said, Dad, that's all there is to life? He looks up again. He says, son, have you ever had an unhappy wife? <laughs> <laughs> a happy wife is a happy life. <laughs> so... So it seems to be a very Jewish attitude, um, but it makes it very strong over there. Now, that's how a husband is meant to be. How is a wife supposed to be? I don't know. I'm not a wife. <laughs> um, but I do know that... the well, you know marriage, what you want in the relationship. Yeah. I'm, I know my role. My role no, is to keep my wife you happy. You know what you what makes you happy. You would know what you would want from your wife. I'll tell you. I went around when we lived. We lived in Thornhill. I, I ran around and did my own little survey, and I asked men, "What is the one thing in your marriage that bugs you the most?" Everybody had the same answer. What was it? Every man had the same thing. I wanted to stop criticizing me. I come in the house, I take up my jacket, and I put it on the back of a chair. And why you put your back, can't you hang up your <laughs> I want to feel like, can I just can I just breathe over here? It's my house. I want to feel at home over here. Is everything I do wrong? Like uh, one man said to me, if a, if, a, if, a, if, a, if a man is alone in the forest and he says something and there's no woman there to correct him, is he still wrong? 
So that, 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 <laughs> this is this is like the plea of all men. Let me be the king of my castle, please. And as soon as a woman, anybody else will criticize me. I can it's the water off the duck's back. But my wife criticized me. I fall apart. Please don't criticize me. That's yeah. that's your power. Like the Shalah says to a man. He says a man has to know. He writes in the Shalah Kodesh. Man, if your wife criticizes you, you must listen. Even if you know she's wrong, you must listen. Be- why? Because sometimes you can do something wrong, and the only person in the world to criticize you is your wife. So if you top stop her from criticizing you, you're not going to hear about it. Okay, so, but he recognizes that a woman's criticism is very, very powerful to her husband. The wife's very powerful. So if so, she should hold on to it for when she really needs it, because otherwise. It's very destructive. Very destructive. That's advice. There's this book, you know, and I both um, from one of our episodes, uh, Miriam Raquel Feldman. She's a somatic coach and a relationship mm-hmm. coach, and she told, yeah, we we actually are Feldman, through, yeah. through her, but mm-hmm. she was she likes the work of Laurie Doyle, she, um, and she suggested to us to get the book, The Empowered Wife. And I know there's a lot of different opinions about this book, but mm-hmm. The Empowered Wife is really about, to me, I'd have to read the book actually, but it's about us working on ourselves rather than working on our husbands. <laughs> like Everything in life, there's there's no there's no one fix or one shita. You know, like if you're going to put your child in a in a school, the last school is a school that has a the philosophy of education on the front door. You you don't want one philosophy to fix everything. You need to be able to look for. From advice from all over the place, from many, many people who are willing to give very good advice. And there's lots of good advice out there. It's just nobody ever wants to take advice. <laughs> That's all. The 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 thing that comes out in the Drushi Hassan and the Hasidis about marriage most strongly is that a man and a woman naturally don't fit together. Even the love that holds them together. The man's love is a very different love than the woman's love. And though that's not good enough to hold them together. The chuppah holds them together. What's the chuppah? This is something beyond them that holds them together. So, in other words, um, sometimes you look at each other and say, why on earth did I, why? Why did my parents mar- let me marry this guy? You know, what's going on? It's such a second. It's, and it's going to happen sometimes. And sometimes in a good marriage, there's really big fights and things can really fall apart, especially in first in the early years. So at that point, but there's a dedication to the marriage. I'm going to make this work. It's not about me, it's not about her, it's not about it's about we're going to make this thing work. So this is an amazing thing. There, there was um one of these times when 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 Clinical research really comes up with something. It, it, they it usually know something's true is when the facts come out not as you like it. So this was an experiment <laughs> that that certain um, clinicians were doing. There, they wanted to see how much uh, another person's hand affected your sensation of pain. That's all. So you lie down on a couch and uh, take your shoes and socks off, and somebody holds your hand, and we prick your toe with a pin. 
okay? And we measure the amount of pain and so on. And uh, and do it with, in different situations, different situations. So they found, okay, some people, the hand helped and some people the hand didn't help. So trying to figure out what, what's the differences over here. So they said, well, maybe when it's, maybe it's different when you're holding hands with a significant other. Okay, so they did with a significant other and said, well, some cases it helped, some cases it didn't help. So somebody said, well, maybe the cases where they're actually married are different than the cases where they're not actually married. And they said, well, that's ridiculous. Why should it make any difference? Well, let's look. And they looked, and yes, that was the case. Wow. People who had been living together for years, holding the person's hand when their toe was pricked, had no effect because they were married. Therefore, holding another person's hand, they didn't feel pain. So there's something that happens. We're, we're after, after all, we're homo ritualis. Human beings are, are molded by ritual. There's something that happens at the time of Luchopa, and that dedication is, I'm not just dedicating myself to this person. We are, the two of us, we are building something together. We're building. We're building a family. We're building a home. Friend of mine, he had a, a selling his house, and the real estate agent puts up a sign: "Home for sale." And I said to I, I said to him, Max, you can't sell your home. <laughs> he said, "You're right. I can't sell my home. I'm selling the house, a home you build and you take it with you forever. You're going to have your your house. Who knows what's going to be with it? Your home, Tchiasamesim. You're going to come Tchiasamesim. You'll have that home. It's a binyan ade ad." And that's what you're building, and you can only build it with this other person. You're building something together, and that's what you're dedicated to. And that gives you a much, much stronger bond, much greater bond in life. Uh, I'll never forget this scene. We saw one of these big IMAX movies about beavers. It was so tremendous. It was just, you know, Amishpia told me early in life, in my married life, that you have once in a while, you just just you and your wife have to go out together, you know. So we go out to this IMAX movie, a uh, nature movies, okay. IMAX about beavers. And it's the two little beavers, male and female beavers, and they come to a stream, and you see this little stream in the forest, and they, of course, start chewing down trees and bringing trees, and they're making a dam, and they're damming up the river. And after a while, you look at the scene, and there's a lake because of these beavers, and they start building a dam, a whole dam and, and a home for themselves. And then after they build this dam and create an entire lake, the, the whole ecosystem has changed. And then they they, they built their, their home there inside the dam and everything, and then they dance. The two beavers dance together. Hmm. And, and that scene... Uh, so beautiful, the dance together, so cute. And then they have little beavers. <laughs> and this camera backs off, and you see the same scene that you saw before was a forest with a little stream, a gigantic lake with this huge dam, and the two beavers with their little beavers behind them. So it's just like that scene, that's what we're building here, except their dam probably is gone by now even though maybe it lasted 50 years, 100 years, 
And this home that we're building is forever. And we do that dance together all the time. So and part of being in a beautiful relationship is accepting you know, the otherness of the person that we that we choose. And um, you know, I think very often this is kind of another topic that Rifka and I wanted to ask you about the difference between contentment and complacency. Often we might assume that if we allow something or if we're content, that means that we agree or that we're complacent. And um, and so how would we sift the two apart, like so they're not confused with one another, or how do we like understand contentment in its true form? Is there like a a daily dose that can help us do that? I'm trying to imagine a content Jew. (laughs) 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 Where content? It just seems so the opposite. Everything about us, you know, says the Torah was only given to those who ate the man, the manna. To get the Torah, you had to eat manna. Why? Because the, the, the manna that we ate in the desert made us discontent. It was called ma'achal ra'avon. It, it's, it was a food that caused hunger. It caused you to be discontent. And the only way a person can learn Torah, I mean, it's all about what being Jewish means, you look at the world and you say, what on earth is going on over here? This is not the way this world is supposed to be. And so you change it. That's who we've always been. Nothing is right. You know, like they say, the Jew, the, the kosher restaurant, the waiter comes over and, say, and asks the party, is anything okay? <laughs> so, you know, there's a different world, a word. It's not contentment. It's a word that does not have any translation by any stretch of the imagination into English, and it's called nachas. Nachas is not contentment. Nachas is, like I said, there's no, <laughs> no translation, nachas. Um, Maybe that's the difference. You know, Esav had a grandson called Nachas. That's not not Jewish Nachas. That's complacency. But uh, complacency is the enemy of everything Jewish. Nachas is okay. Nachas, a person has to look at, look at the mitzvahs that I did. Look at the home I created. Look at my, look at my kinderlach or going in my ways, the, the ways of Torah that I taught them. Ah, nachas. Nachas. Now, now, what more? What do we do next? What do we do next? So you you look back and you see, yeah, it's working. It's working. It's working. But that just gives you thirst to create more. So I, so like the Rebbe puts it, so you earn $200. Go earn $400, right? You can accomplish that. If you can accomplish that now, you can do double the amount. I can do even more. So definitely, not nachas is not complacent, and it's not contentment. I mean, when, you, when we think of like you did, like when we think of Eza who ashir hasameach bechalkai, somebody who is wealthy is happy with their lot, but at the same time, you know, you could be happy with what you have, but at the same time, you know, not feel like it's this. I still, you know, want to do more. Like I'm not content. I'm content, but I'm not. I guess it's maybe sad, like content, but not satisfied. You know, it's, 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 um, yeah, I mean. Is, actually, it doesn't say content. It says somebody who is Samech Bechelko. He's, he, he's, he knows how to celebrate. He knows how to enjoy that which he has. He's wealthy. A person can't enjoy what he has and what he's accomplished. Then he's impoverished. 
So when you've accomplished something, you feel joy from that. That's that nachis. You you able to receive from it, from what from your own children, from your accomplishments. You're able to 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 get that, feel that feedback, and that drives you. It doesn't mean semech bechelko doesn't mean you're content with what you have. It means you you're able to walk into your home the way you've done the nice, beautiful interior design over there, and everything's a nice place, and you feel, I like it. I I feel happy in my home. Now I'm going to make it an even more beautiful home. I feel happy about this man that I married, and I'm going to make him even better. I feel such nachas for my children. I'm going to invest in them even more. So the one thing I noticed about uh, when we started raising children, I wanted to look and say, okay, who has great children and what do they do? You know, I had this like, uh, I took my 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 uh, psychology courses very seriously. I'm going to have to make a survey over here. This This guy has really good kids. Okay, what does he do? Every guy I asked who had good kids, I said, oh, don't ask me, my wife, it's entirely up to my... But I looked, I watched, and I saw there's a key. Those who have nachas from their kids are the ones who have nachas from their kids. Do you understand what I mean? The guy who enjoys his kids jumping on his stomach and, 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 and enjoys watching his kids play and enjoys whatever his kids do, he gets nachas from it. The kids give him more and more nachas. The kids wow. turn out to be great kids, and they love their father. Why? Because he has nachas from them. Right. And so it works with so many things. When, when You have to be semech bechelko. Know how to enjoy everything that you've done, and everything that you have, everything that you've created in the world. And then you'll do more. That's not contentment. That's not complacency. It's it's a whole new world. It's called nachas. I really love that. Nice. Beautiful. It actually ties in with the next thing I want to ask you, you know, a purpose, you know, having that nachas and also um, contributing. We wanted to ask you about passion and purpose. This is a topic that comes up often on our platform, but we want we thought it would be great to get a daily dose from you. Even just most recently, we interviewed Joseph Telushkin. And uh, before the episode, I was reading his book, The Rebbe. And in there, there were some interesting stories on people who were passionate about certain things, for example, making aliyah or going to school, and the Rebbe would advise them otherwise. And so it made me think how we could be passionate about something, but not necessarily is our passion always our purpose. And so we would love to get a daily dose from you on how do we know when our passion meets our purpose? How do we know that we're living our purpose? So so all it is really, it, it, it's much easier to, to solve. Passion is raw material. It's a very raw drive. And it needs uh, more nuance. It needs to be find more um, direct articulation. So in order to do that, you need somebody to guide you. And so Baruch Hashem, a Rebbe, a Mashpia, even friends to tell you. There's really direct, it's directly addressed in the in a mission at Perkyavas, the second parak. Rabbi says, 
Rabbi Huda Nasi. So he was the Nasi. He was the the the, the Rebbe of the time, and the one Nasi for all the Jewish people. And he said, "So what is the derech? What's the right way? The most upright right way for any person to go?" And he gives two criteria. It's beautiful for you, and it's beautiful in the eyes of other people. You need friends. You need people who are more advanced in life than you. And you go to them and you say, I really feel like I want to be a ballet dancer. <laughs> and they say to you, Rivka, I, ballet dancing, there are things you could take that to that's not ballet dancing, that you don't have to destroy your body and do those things. There, there are other ways. I think your passion really could be channeled this way. And that really looks good for you. So you need those you need those friends to tell you and which way to take it. And otherwise, people really mess up their lives. <laughs> Just going that direction. So I had a passion for music. And I took it somewhere. I became a, a good classical guitarist. Then I came to Yeshiva. And Rabbi Avram Lipsker said to me, well, that sounds nice, but can you play like with a big amplifier and an electric guitar and make a lot of noise? Why? Because that's what we need right now. <laughs> and we did that, and we went on campus and got a lot of kids to wrap to fill in and whatever, those things. So it can be channeled in different ways and different directions, but you need guidance to find that channel. So yes, passion. Passion tells you a lot, but you need other people to know exactly where to take it. That feedback. And it's other people that help shape our lives. The people they're called, they're, they're others only in body, but not in soul. I mean, this, this is the crisis today is we don't have friends. And we so we need friends more today than any other time in history. We need friends. We need to forbring with others to be able to open up. Like they say today, the language is make yourself vulnerable. Nobody wants to. But that's what we need today. We need to be able to have friends who you can open up to, and they're not going to bring it back and throw it in your face that you're close with. And to have friends, we need to have good forbringings and good ways to get together. It's beautiful. On sadness, um, and I should say sadness slash depression, which a lot of people do experience today, especially after you know COVID and all the isolation that um, that people experience during that time. Luckily, we're you know we're now on the other side, but still there are like residual effects. And so, what would you say um, would be a good dose of wisdom for someone who experiences you know feelings of sadness or depression? Feeling down, basically. Yeah, so for that, there is, um, where did I put it? For that, we have a whole section of meditations for happiness on, at Chabad.org slash Daily Dose, and lots of them. But I think the ones that are most important, there's two, really. This is very short, straight to the point. A person is happy when he knows something worthwhile belongs to him. A person is very happy when he feels he is small, and yet he owns something very great. We are all finite owners of the infinite. So the step-by-step -step with that 
is that first you have to recognize how small you are. The bigger you are, the harder harder it is to be happy. Like happy means you're jumping up and down. That's very hard when you're big, when you're very, very big. You're gonna upset something. When you're small, that's much easier. When you're small, when you're big, whatever you get, you feel you deserve. And you actually you deserve much more. So there's what to kvetch about, not to be happy about. But when you're small, whatever you receive, you're so happy. Wow, why did God give me this? I don't deserve this. Thank you so much. So that gratefulness really makes you really makes you happy. Okay, but there are times when no matter how much you think and meditate and the right things, you're not going to be happy. You know what you have to do then? You have to you have to find somebody else to make happy. I'm looking for that one. That's what I'm looking for. About the highest happiness. Here it is. True happiness. True happiness is the highest form of self-sacrifice. There in that state, there's no sense of self, not even awareness that you are happy. True happiness is somewhere beyond the knowing, beyond self, all the more so when you bring joy to others. So that's what you have to do when you feel miserable, is go find somebody to make happy. There's somebody, no matter how miserable you are, there's somebody more miserable than you. Go make that person happy. And then you'll be happier. There's no shortage of them. (laughs) That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and it extends to any area of struggle is to help someone else who struggles in that area um, can help you with your own struggle. I think think that's a, that's really, two really um, short and sweet meditations to, and on, and as we wrap up, we wanted you to finish a few sentences to are very curious about this. So you're going to do it, and we're going to do it in the first person. The best advice I received was: "We get married, <laughs> <laughs> or marry her. Yes, marry her. Yeah, that's nice. We we've been told that we should be interviewing your wife. So you know, <laughs> my wife, <laughs> we my daughters, my sons, my grandchildren. Yeah." yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. Well, you took on the advice, so that's good. (laughs) If I could make something trendy or universally embraced, it would be? Chassidus. Rebbe and Chassidus. My goal to begin with, with bringing heaven down to earth, was I wanted to make the Rebbe quotable. I figured there's all these people look up as icons, as gurus. The Rebbe should be the world's icon of wisdom. And and life wisdom, and Hasidus should be the thing that everybody get is excited about. It's ignored in the in the departments of philosophy and psychology, and everywhere else where it's so valuable, and and it and it should be the thing that people talk about on the street. Well, you're doing that. Well, actually, here in Sandy Springs. It, it is. I, I I find like we've got a community here where people will just stand walking to shul talking about Hasidus. So it's it's becoming that way. The greatest quality I admire in a person is the the greatest quality I admire in a person is the great quality I find in that particular person. From each person I, I have something to learn. And there's some amazing people. Uh, 
that I've met that I've learned so much from from just watching how how they behave. It's a great answer. I, I love that. Um, not one I've heard before. The new perspective. You know, I feel like someone we can be so quick to just say, you know, kindness, generosity, but but to say that each person has their unique uniqueness um, and special yeah. quality. Well, well, I'll tell you one of the things that was very always very difficult for me in life was socializing with others. Um, not not that I'm antisocial, but because I just you know, like to say my own thing and do my own thing. Is it so? To, but at a certain point in life, I decided, you know, I want to gain this skill, and I sat there and just watched how how people younger than me, my same age, older than me, and watched. Oh, look how they work with each other. Look how they make each other feel good. Look how they talk to each other. Look how they're comfortable with each other, and how they do that. And just sitting at Verbrengen's or Suda or whatever and watching people like that, and you you start to recognize people that people everybody likes, the great qualities they have. And then you try to absorb a little bit of that. I have the most clarity when? I don't know, when I have a good night's sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, the truth is I have the most clarity when I'm out hiking in the wilderness. Look, I'm I'm from I'm a Vancouver boy where the city when I grew up was a, a rainforest and everybody goes hiking there and nature is a big deal. So yeah, yeah outdoors in the wilderness is the place where I have clarity and can really think. And and that's the, the best writing that I've done is when I write it all in my mind beforehand while walking hiking and got it all straight there, and then I can write it down afterwards. Beautiful. Insightful. Good to hear. My definition of happiness is? My definition of happiness? Or or what makes me happy is? Okay, so look, my, my, my image of happiness, if I have an image of happiness, is something very uh, small and light and bright, a sunbeam dancing around in the sun and the air. That's your light, your small, and your light, not just weight light, but light, you're reflecting light. So that's why happiness has a lot to do with smallness. And let the light shine. Beautiful. We always end with a favorite quote. And we're looking forward to hearing yours. Can you share your favorite, one of your favorite quotes with us? I, I, I've got a thousand quotes. I know that's why we're very curious. <laughs> one that resonated. One that resonates with you. Just one that resonates with you today. Just today, then you're not going to hold me to this because tomorrow it's going to be a different quote. And <laughs> okay, it, so it's going to keep ahead. on changing and changing all the <laughs> we're time. We're going with the present. <laughs> okay. Can we do we oh I'm curious. Okay. <laughs> now we'll do the today. Uh, I I don't know. Today, which quote? Oh, I'll tell you one quote resonates in my mind all the time. Caravel Tint. Turn the world upside down today. <laughs> Turn the world upside down. Yeah, revolution now. The 
in the Kutis Sichus, Gimel, Volume 3 of Rabbi Sichus, the Rabbi says, when they left Egypt, they went through the splitting of the Red Sea. The sea stood up to the right and to the left. Why does it have to say to the right and to the left? Because when you, if you're leaving your own Egypt, you're leaving your own Egypt, if you find yourself going to the right or to the left, you're going back into Egypt. And the only way to get out of your own Egypt is to go both to the right and to the left at the same time. In other words, never let them define you. Never say, I am this. Always be going to both the right and the left. Always be escaping what you were the moment, the very moment before. We're both kind of meditating on what you just shared. I, I'm, I'm really taking that in. <laughs> I know, we're taking it in. I, I feel like I, I um, to me, it's like to the right and to the left means that I feel like directionless in a way. But that's not what it is. That's just kind of a surface interpretation. Um, but, you know, just being able to not label yourself or to feel defined too much where you're inflexible, um, you know, that's the direction to go. And I, I still I feel like Rifka and I are probably going to be discussing this. Yeah, we're um, going to be discussing this after, after this episode. episode. I want to but, end with the question in yeah. that how is... Um, not defining yourself, how do you connect that with turning the world upside down? Yeah, it's both to me, it's both the same thing. But you can meditate on it. Yeah, we'll meditate, meditate on it. On it. Well, and I guess maybe, when, we don't, when we don't define ourselves, we're able to be ourselves, and that's how we're going to change the world. Yeah, and it also has to do with having a good, happy marriage. But the best advice was really to marry the woman I married, and because she's the only one who can handle somebody who's going to the right and left at the same time. <laughs> that's the only way it works. The only way it works. A guy who's driving the wrong side, the wrong lane on the highway, in the wrong direction all the time. So, but that's what you have to be. 